Welcome to the Well-Nurtured Brain, where we delve into the exciting world of brain health. Every episode, we bring the latest research and expert insights on mental and neurological health and offer practical tips and strategies on how to nurture your brain and optimize its function. From mental wellness to neurological health, we'll cover it all so you can become skilled in the care and feeding of the most important organ in your body, the one that makes you you, your brain. Welcome to episode 12 of The Well-Nurtured Brain. I'm your host, Dr. Pamela Hutchison, naturopathic doctor with over 20 years of clinical practice supporting folks with mental health and neurological challenges live healthy lives. And I'm here today to deliver on part two of our mind diet extravaganza. Part two is really about what it is. So we went over the science in part one. If you haven't had a chance to listen to it, please go back. The science is inspiring, and my whole goal with giving you the science first was to inspire you for this part here, because when we start talking about serving sizes and how much of things might get a little dry, but if you're really motivated, you're going to want to know, you know, what is a serving size of nuts, Pam? (laughs) If you haven't listened to that, go back and listen to that first because it gives you the inspiration. Now, full disclosure, I am recording this with a sleeping cat in the room. And my cat snores louder than most humans. So there may be some times where you hear the most adorable background snores. It's my cat. Nothing bad is happening. It's just my cat, Ari, having a good nap. All right. So a quick recap of what we're talking about here. So Martha Claire Morris and colleagues work out of the Rush University Medical Center and develop the MIND diet based on their own incredible research that they did over many years, looking at the correlation between certain styles of eating and how the brain would age and the development of Alzheimer's dementia and cognitive decline in people or how people's cognitive function is affected by what they eat. And they also included in this mind diet, the research, they stood on the shoulders of giants. So this diet is based on the Mediterranean diet and the DASH diet, and then has these recommendations of focusing on certain foods that are the best of. These foods seem to be some of the best performing foods when it comes to the research for slowing cognitive decline and preventing Alzheimer's incidence in the population. We talked about four studies. This is in the previous part one. One was the uh, evidence that people who scored high in a mind diet adherence scoring system developed Parkinson's disease 17.4 years later than those with low adherence. That was in the female cohort only. We also talked about a slower rate of cognitive decline after stroke in a six-year follow-up study comparing the people with the highest scores of mind diet adherence to those with the lowest scores of mind diet adherence. There was a slower rate of cognitive decline after stroke, which is a common sequela to stroke, as we discussed. We also talked about a 53% lower incident of Alzheimer's dementia, again, in that cohort or that quartile of the cohort that uh, was in a high adherence to the mind diet versus a low adherence to the mind diet. And we looked at one randomized control trial last time 
where they looked at a group of obese, middle-aged Iranian women and had them randomized to a control diet or the MIND diet and found that the adherence to the MIND diet in just three months resulted in improvements in a battery of cognitive function tests and changes on MRI. Now, before I get started, I have to nerd out just a little bit more because I thought afterwards that I had focused so much on, again, the neurodegenerative aspects of the research looking at the MIND diet that I thought, you know, I should really dig in and see what's been looked at in terms of other things. Because of the stroke study, I thought, let's check out if people are researching the MIND diet and recovery from concussion or recovery from traumatic brain injury. I found nothing. There's some general guidelines that look kind of similar. A lot of what the concussion protocols look like that I found, and granted, there's some concussion experts out there that might give me a run for my money and say, actually, there's a lot more data out there, Dr. Pam, than what you're talking about. But my survey, which I admit was limited by time and resources, I found nothing. I found nothing with multiple Boolean searches. If you find something, email me. I'm so interested. I think someone needs to do that research. But I did find that there's been a few studies looking at the intersection of mood and anxiety, mood disorders and psychological distress and anxiety with the MIND diet. A couple of these studies are, again, Iranian. I'm noticing a trend line with the Iranian researchers and looking at this diet. There was two studies that I found out of Iran. One was a 2019 study uh, that was published in the Journal of Affective Disorders where they had 3,176 people that they looked at in a cross-sectional study where they did food frequency questionnaires and generated these mind diet scores and then also were looking at and scoring these participants on anxiety and depression rating scales that were specific and validated for the Iranian population. And they also did something called a general health questionnaire. And they did find that the highest quartile of people who adhered to the MIND diet had lower odds of depression, about a 32% lower risk or lower odds of scoring as having major depressive disorder and scoring as having psychological distress. They didn't find a correlation in this study with MIND diet adherence and anxiety risk at all. But then they did, and this goes back to this correlation between women and the MIND diet. So they did a gender stratified analysis, and they found a significant association with women. They did a gender stratified analysis, and they could not find a significant association for men with adherence, high adherence to the MIND diet and odds of psychological disorders in general, whether it was anxiety, depression, or what they're calling psychological distress. But they found it in the women when they did this stratified analysis. And women had a 40% reduced odd or likelihood of having depression and a 36% decreased likelihood of having psychological distress when they split out these populations. This study and the study on the middle-aged obese women, both in Iran, So Iranian populations are probably quite different, we would assume, and have a lot of different stressors. So the women in those populations have different stressors than 
than North American women, not saying that they're better or worse, they're just different, and their lifestyles are different. But the study that was done in Canada at UBC by Dr. Silky Cresswell, she found that women who adhered to the MIND diet had this 17.4 year delay in onset of their Parkinson's motor symptoms versus people who were low in adherence to that diet. So there's another study looking at different neurodegenerative condition or neurological condition, like mood. Parkinson's disease has mood problems, but it's certainly very different than just studying depression. Also finding this correlation with women that I'm really interested, of course, in. Like, is there an intersection between how women's bodies metabolize these foods or how women's microbiomes deal with these foods? Does it change the outcome? Does it improve the outcomes for them? It's interesting. In 2019, there was also a Spanish-American group that did a mind versus Mediterranean diet study looking at the association with these diets and depression incidents. It was a prospective cohort, so they were following people through time, and they had a large group of people here. This was 15,980 adults who did not have major depression at baseline, and they followed them forward for two years They did not find a correlation between the highest and lowest quartiles of the MIND diet and depression incidents. They did find a correlation with the Mediterranean diet and decreased incidence of major depressive disorders. So people that were adhering to the Mediterranean diet, the population was in Spain. They had a lower incidence of major depressive disorder. couple kind of curious sub-diet analyses, they did see a correlation with lower major depressive risk with higher intakes of fruits and nuts, and specifically with the avoidance of fried and fast food. A little callback to our ultra-processed food podcast a little while ago, and the again, the evidence that they had found that increased ultra-processed food in some of the research we talked about then, increased in ultra-processed food, which would be these deep fried and fast foods, and depression incidence was found just correlated with those foods purely on their own. So nothing on concussion, I'm sad to report, but a few pieces of info on mood. And there's more out there looking at the Mediterranean diet and mood. And let's keep in mind, too, that this is generally encouraging that people eat a Mediterranean slash DASH style diet with an emphasis on these specific foods. No one diet is going to be perfect for every person in the population. 100%. We need to pick and choose our battles with everything in life that includes diet. And one thing that I get concerned about whenever I'm talking about diet, especially when I'm talking about diet in this context where it's going out to a general population, is that We need to consider that whole person. So please take this as educational. And if you are planning to do this, take it to a knowledgeable professional who has an awareness of your specific medical needs. Because there may be some foods or some ways of eating that we discuss here that aren't great for your specific medical needs. It's always important to remember that there's the general recommendation And then if you have some specific medical needs, you may need to augment or change how you approach this particular diet. 
Also, as a clinician, I'm abundantly aware that sometimes when we start talking about food with certain folks, we need to be really careful that we don't create unnecessary rigor around diet. We do want you to eat in ways that promote health, but if food becomes something where the person is focused on the perfect consumption of the mind diet, we might be into a terrain of actually some increased stress in that person. And if that's you, and you know that you have a tendency towards this type of response to thinking about your diet, you could choose to sit this out. You could take this to a dietitian who might help you with setting more reasonable, really kind guidelines for yourself around how you might approach doing this. It's not unusual to come across people in my clinical practice where I start to talk about changing or adjusting their diet and they say, you know what, this is actually a really challenging area for me. I find that it brings up old patterns. And so if that's you, please take that invitation to heart and, you know, take it with a grain of salt, bring this to someone who can really support you through the process. All right. So this diet really encourages that you focus in on a few targets in your day and in your week. In your day, the foods that they've determined that it's wise to include and that they score high on the studies is three or more servings of whole grains and one or more servings of veggies other than leafy green veggies, which have their own scoring system or their own goal here. So I thought it would be helpful to give you ideas about what a serving size is and it does actually change depending on where you are in the world. So I'm basing this on the Canadian food guide. Apologies to all the Americans and Australians and Lithuanians and Taiwanese people. I'm apparently scoring in the Taiwan charts lately. I'm hoping that you will be able to just go with these guidelines or adjust them to uh, your needs specifically. So what is a serving of whole grains? Well, most servings of whole grains are based on the weight or the volume of a slice of bread. So if you have a sandwich, that whole grain bread that you're using would be two servings of the three or more that you're being recommended to have with the MIND diet. When it comes to cooked grains, whole grain cereals, it's half a cup cooked. So that would be half a cup of steel-cut oats, for instance, that have been cooked half a cup of cooked rice, um, like brown rice, and half a cup of whole grain pasta. And then for servings of vegetables, this one can be a bit hard to, to estimate, but you're generally aiming for what would be the volume of about half a cup chopped or 75 grams in weight of those vegetables. That would be a half a cup of peas. If you dice carrots, it's about half a cup of diced carrots. If you have a scale at home, you can certainly weigh out 75 grams. One thing I would recommend, and I'd say this a lot to folks when I'm in clinical practice, is that even if it feels onerous for a couple of weeks, it's usually wise to experiment with, particularly with the veggies and leafy greens and with any high-calorie food, that you experiment with measuring it out and getting a sense of how much that actually looks like on your plate. You can get pretty good at eyeballing what half a cup of broccoli is when you measure it out a few times 
and then put it on your plate. Same with whole grains even. You know, like measuring out, like after you've cooked your steel-cut oats in the morning for breakfast, putting it into a a half-cup measure so that you can then pour that into a bowl and see what it looks like. It really gives you a sense of how many servings you're getting. There are some additional benefits to understanding portions because sometimes that helps people gauge whether or not they might be, particularly with high-calorie foods, what they might be maybe over-consuming without realizing that they're over-consuming a high-calorie food. So sometimes there is an additional weight benefit to taking this moment to measure things out for a while, you know, putting it on project status for a week or two and saying, you know, I'm just going to measure out my food so I can start to get a felt sense and a visual sense of what a serving looks like for those foods. So those are the only two foods that they emphasize daily consumption with a specific target. So that three servings or more of whole grains and one or more servings of of veggies other than leafy greens. All the rest of these recommendations are on a per week basis in terms of foods they want you to include. So one is not going to surprise you at all. The first one is six or more servings of leafy greens. Folks that are really listening in closely and listening to all the episodes will remember that we did a whole thing on leafy greens. And so it won't surprise those folks that listen to that, and I recommend you listen if you haven't, that these foods are brain foods and it's not surprising that they're wanting you to get about a serving a day, just under a serving per day, which is one cup raw, measured raw, or a half a cup measured cooked. Now, when you're measuring leafy greens, I've asked dietitians about this. And again, this I really strongly suggest you do is that you get a sense with leafy greens, what a hand, your own handful, if you grab a handful of, let's say, salad mix, you have a mescaline mix from the farmer's market and you want to know how much would just a handful of that be? Because how many of us do that? You just grab a handful and you throw it in a bowl and that's the beginning of a salad. Measure it out. You might find that your handfuls average about one cup. Or you might find that that it averages two cups. That's bonus, right? Bonus greens. When you're measuring leafy greens, you need to tamp it down. You don't need to squish it till, you know, all the air is out. That's not how they measure it. It is a tamping it down. Or if you can want to weigh it at 75 grams. And then five or more servings of nuts. Now they say nuts. They don't mention seeds. They just mention nuts. And what that would look like in terms of servings, if you were having nut butter, that would be two tablespoons of nut butter as a serving in the Canada Food Guide. And you want to measure that one because it's not a heaping tablespoon. It's a flat tablespoon. So that one, I think measuring that gives you a really good sense of it. And this is one of those high calorie foods that it's good to measure and just get a sense of what actually is the two tablespoons serving And I know there's a lot of disappointment out there when people really see what it is, especially with peanut butter. I've seen that meme going around. But when we're talking about nut butter, like almond butter, cashew butter, hazelnut butter, measure it out. The other way to look at that is a quarter cup of shelled tree nuts. So again, almonds, hazelnuts, cashews, etc., So five plus servings of nuts is actually a decent amount of nuts in a week for our a good chunk of the population is probably not getting that. And there is a lot of reasons why nuts are probably helpful, including they have some really good healthy oils in them. I usually encourage people to eat more on the raw side of nuts and keeping them in their fridge when they're storing them. 
I don't see any indication, though, that that's what they encouraged or how they scored the mind diet. Another food was four or more servings of beans, so beans and legumes. So this is a half a cup cooked beans. It would be one serving. Again, I think a lot of folks out there don't eat a lot of beans in North America. I'm a huge fan of lentils. Lentils would be included in beans and legumes. I think they're a superstar food. One time someone asked me what would be three foods that I could choose to bring to a a stranded island. I said, at the time, I believe I said lentils, uh, nutritional yeast, and kale. I wish I'd said olives or maybe just said and olives on the side because I think that would be pretty good. You would get a pretty good nutritional setup there if that's what you had. Okay, so beans, half a cup cooked, and four or more servings a week. That's a goodly amount of beans. Berries. Now, berries are one of these foods that they have looked at a lot in studies looking at neurodegeneration, and especially blueberries have been researched a lot in this area. And Martha Claire Morris and colleagues certainly picked up on that. And they said that per week, two or more servings of berries, which is a half a cup of berries. And then this one's an interesting one because it's specifically poultry. So chicken, turkey, two or more servings of poultry. In Canada, a serving of chicken is two and a half ounces. It's not three ounces. It's two and a half ounces. That's a good one to measure out if you've got a scale at home. It's not as big as you might think. So two or more servings per week of poultry is, again, a good one to measure out. Another way to think of that is that it's about a half a cup of volume of that meat. And then one or more servings of fish, same serving size as poultry. So two and a half ounces or a half a cup of volume. And then they encouraged a moderate intake of wine, which could take us down quite a big rabbit hole here. Um, Because I think with wine, we do have a risk-benefit analysis we need to do for individuals, again, with specific health problems or specific histories around addiction and alcoholism. But also there's been some recent tremendously well-grounded guidelines around alcohol and its increased risk of things like cancer. So the more that people consume it, the higher their cancer risk is. And so we don't want to encourage the consumption of something that seems to incur this risk just simply because it was showing up as a benefit on the Mediterranean diet and mine diet. We might want to be a bit more thoughtful on this. I know that in the Canadian guidelines set out by the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction, what they recommend is that you keep alcohol intake to two drinks or less per week, as this is associated with a low risk for alcohol-related consequences from consuming alcohol. I don't know if that actually is what the MIND diet considers moderate. My understanding is that it's actually a bit higher than that, but this is where I would suggest that you aim just taking in the whole picture here and additional research that's going on with alcohol that I think is safer. And then the one other thing they mention about including is that your cooking fat and just fat added to food should generally or mainly or exclusively be olive oil. No surprise there. Olive oil is usually used in recipes and tablespoon portions and folks are, again, really wise to measure that out. 
because it's very easy to just eyeball it. And I know myself when I eyeball it, I I overpour. Plus, I really like oily food. Yes, I do. <laughs> Confession time. And when I take the moment to measure out the oil, I'm always a little bit, again, disappointed, similar to uh, peanut butter or nut butters, disappointed in what that actually looks like. And also, wiser for it. So please do measure that out. It helps you, again, with caloric consumption, which is helpful over time to keep ourselves within a healthy weight range. And then the diet goes into what things that we would limit. I like this diet because it doesn't limit very many things. What it limits, though, is really the heavy hitters. So one of the heavy hitters is butter and margarine, and they're very emphatic that you have less than one tablespoon per day of butter or margarine. This is reinforced in other studies. It helps to limit saturated fats, which we know is a problematic thing for overall health. And then on a per week basis, this one's a bit draconian. They want less than one serving per week of cheese. And a serving of cheese is only 50 grams or one and a half ounces. You might be hearing Ari in the background. He is making his presence known. He's woken up and I think he's mad. So one serving a week of cheese, like it's actually less than one serving a week of cheese. When I read that, I thought, wow, that's going to be hard. That's hard for me. I have been dramatically reducing cheese personally in my diet and encourage patients to do this thing where it becomes a condiment or a flavor enhancer, not the protein of your meal. This reinforces that. They are saying basically that you want to keep your cheese low and that you basically are eating it as a treat, less than one serving a week, not a lot of cheese. Also, <laughs> less than one serving per week of fried foods. Less surprising, but we do know that when people have fried fast foods, those types of things, that this is not good for them in many systems, including their brain. So that is less than one serving per week of those foods. There's not really a portion or, or serving size that I could come to you as a general consensus for all fried foods. But I think you get the sense that less than one serving per week is a very small amount. And a small bowl of potato chips would be still pretty close to exceeding that if you were having that on a weekly basis. One other area will not surprise you, but also is, is a bit more generous, is that you want to be less than four servings per week of red meat, which is beef, pork, lamb, the serving size for those things is also two and a half ounces or half a cup volume. In the Alberta food guide, they <laughs> I love that they do this. They call it the hockey puck size, which is just so Canadian. It's the hockey puck serving. When I think about a hockey puck, I actually think it's maybe a little bit big for this, but hockey puck volume. <laughs> I've seen deck of cards. As you can imagine, those things aren't exactly the same volume, but it's in that range, right? This is not rocket science. We don't want you out there weighing everything all the time. But again, getting that sense of, well, what does it actually mean to have half a cup volume of red meat? You can measure that out, put it on your plate, look at it and go, okay, now I know. And the final thing for limiting is less than five servings per week of pastries and sweets. So this is your croissants and your cake and your cookies and your you know, your puddings, like all of the dessert things. 
you want to keep that under five servings per week. Serving sizes on those things are likely around half a cup. Depends again on what you're having. Like one croissant is one serving. Pastries and sweets tend to have a lot of simple carbohydrates. Often they're cooked with a lot of saturated fats. And they are often um, not made with whole grains. So they tend to be foods that are low in nutritional benefit. And they're associating higher consumptions of these with actually worse outcomes in terms of cognitive uh, health. One thing just around Parkinson's disease in this diet that I just want to highlight is that in our interview with Dr. Lori Mishley, who is an expert in diet and Parkinson's disease, her cohort is showing that increased poultry consumption seems to be associated with faster decline in Parkinson's patients. And so she recommends mine diet minus the poultry, so no chicken, which gets you down to a really heavily plant-based diet for folks with Parkinson's disease. And I thought you might be curious to nerd out a little bit with me around, well, why would this diet, why would these foods be helpful for the brain? And I'm going to focus in on a couple of the main signals that are out there. This is not exhaustive. There's going to be lots of reasons why these foods are helpful. But there's some really cool stuff around a few items that are going to be high in a diet like this that I think are playing a role and that when you look at review studies out there, people doing papers on this, these are some of the things that they hit on when they say this. These are presumed mode of actions for these foods. I think the fiber content of this diet, when you just look at the goals for the three or more servings per day of whole grains, which really ups your fiber and particularly something called resistant starches, and then all of these veggies and leafy greens and berries and beans and nuts, it's a lot of fiber. And there's something really cool that our microbiome does in our guts with fiber. In the large intestine, the microbiome will metabolize fiber, break it down into a variety of things. One of the things that they produce are these things called short-chain fatty acids. The short-chain fatty acids are these really interesting molecules in the body because they have a lot of anti-inflammatory properties they have far-reaching consequences beyond the gut. So resistant starches and dietary fiber are broken down to acetate, propionate, and butyrate, these three types of short-chain fatty acids. And then those get to the brain in a variety of ways. So the most common two ways that they get to the brain is through the vagus nerve or through the bloodstream. And they do a bunch of really interesting things. For instance, we know that in animal studies, they've seen that increases in these short-chain fatty acids improve the blood-brain barrier integrity in the brains of animals that they've studied. In part, it's because it encourages the production of these proteins that tighten up the connections between the cells and the blood-brain barrier, so they kind of snuggle up tighter and tighter together. Why would that be important? It's important because our brains need to be really careful about what gets in and what doesn't get in because nerve tissue is really vulnerable to certain toxins and certain, certain things, certain organisms. And it really is this high-priority organ. So this blood-brain barrier basically exists as a checkpoint for who gets in and who doesn't get into the brain. If it's leaky, more things that aren't supposed to get into the brain get into the brain. If it's nice and tight and all the cells are nice and snuggled together because they have 
lots of these proteins that encourage them to tightly bind to each other, informed by short-chain fatty acids, you get better integrity, and that means the brain is is a more pristine place with less of the unwanted things in it. Short-chain fatty acids also speak to some of the immune cells that are in the brain called microglia, and the microglial cells are responsible for a host of responses in the brain, but one of the things they do is they they produce inflammatory mediators. Short-chain fatty acids really drive that down and reduce the production of inflammatory mediators by microglia. Sometimes this gets called reduced neural inflammation. They also encourage the production of various what are called neurotrophic factors by nerve cells themselves and by cells around the nerve cells to whenever the brain is releasing neurotrophic factors, we get nerve cell growth or neurogenesis. Brains are constantly reworking themselves. They're constantly responding to the environment and investing in certain areas and deinvesting in other areas. Neurogenesis is a really critical part of this process, critical part of what people think of as neuroplasticity. So if we have short-chain fatty acids upregulating and encouraging this, we have a more nimble brain to respond to the world around us. These short-chain fatty acids also have effects that are in the body that would influence the brain. So they do things like they reduce peripheral inflammation, which can have effects in the brain itself, just because of the way that translates into the tissue of the brain. And one thing I think is really interesting is that they do a lot of blood sugar control work. So for a substance that's produced from fiber, which we consider as like basically non-caloric largely, they actually do a lot for blood sugar control through multiple pathways. So short-chain fatty acids and the production of them is a big benefit of this diet, most plant-based diets, Mediterranean diet for sure. We know that in people with Parkinson's, for instance, we know that one of the things that's going on with them is they actually do have lower than typical levels of short-chain fatty acids. Whole host of reasons why that's going on. But there's a lot of wondering if that's related to changes that happen in the gut microbiome in those folks in advance of like years before they actually have symptoms. If you're emphasizing leafy greens, you end up emphasizing a high folate food. And folate is a B vitamin that's an essential nutrient to the production of neurotransmitters and a whole host of metabolic pathways that function at high levels in the brain. So sometimes some of the thinking around why leafy greens are just so good for us has focused in on that they provide an enormous amount of folate to that person's body. We also know that when we emphasize berries, when we emphasize veggies, especially colorful veggies and leafy greens, we're also emphasizing a lot of antioxidants in the diet. And in general, antioxidants are taken up by various tissues, and they will reduce the effects of oxidative stress and inflammation in the tissues that they're in. So the more that we eat these foods, the more that all of the cells in our body get this investment of these nutrients that reduce the impact of inflammation on our cells, on our DNA, on our cell walls, on our tissues, on our organs, etc. has a bit of a multiplying effect when you think about it. That's another likely mechanism of action for this kind of eating. When we score diets using the MIND diet protocol, 
we are giving people points for more of these foods that are high in antioxidants. One final thing I'll say that's probably an advantage that I've said in a few other ways is that we are definitely noticing that plant-based diets in general seem to be better for multiple systems. And of course, a healthy brain exists within a healthy body. If your body's not healthy, I guarantee you your brain's suffering too. So we know that plant-based diet has benefits for the nervous system, but also for the cardiovascular system, the immune system, digestive system, and more. The other advantage with this diet, or the other great thing about this diet, is that it does emphasize and put some pretty significant limits on some of the more problematic foods that we encounter in day-to-day lives. So the limitation on the fried foods really takes out a lot of these harmful saturated fats and ultra-processed foods that we see as likely some of the more damaging foods for the nervous system. They do represent pro-inflammatory foods. It also limits animal fats, and again, that limits saturated fats. That has a big advantage as well. So it's not just the things that we add in. We are removing some of the things that we know create problems and that we think create problems on the level of just simply being nutrients that encourage cells to have more pro-inflammatory processes going on. And with ultra-processed foods, we don't know. There's probably some other issues around even what those foods are doing on a microbiome level. But we do know that the ultra-processed foods that are being avoided in this diet are really the ones that represent a high level of saturated fat exposure. If you want to dive into this further, there's a couple books that you can look into. Martha Claire Morris and her posse have produced two books, one in 2017 called Diet for the Mind, and then a 2023 version, which is the official mind diet, and that one comes with recipes. Either is a great primer or a great way to get into this process with lots of tools and ideas for how to do it. And again, more of the inspiration and inspiring research behind why this diet is so great. I hope that you have benefited tremendously from this. I know that I enjoyed sharing this information with all of you. I was talking to a patient about how important it is to think about neurodegenerative disease. In this case, we were talking about Parkinson's as not just a disease of the brain, but a metabolic concern. Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease, we know have more going on in that person's body than simply the problems that are showing up in their brains. And A lot of the thinking is that these are maybe better thought of as metabolic conditions with neurological consequences. One of the best ways to affect metabolism is not a pill, it's your diet. Another great way to affect metabolism is exercise. But your diet is foundational to metabolism and changing metabolism. So this is one of your big superpowers, one of the big levers you have in your life for reducing your risk for cognitive decline. One thing that's coming up is I'm going to be at the World Parkinson's Congress in Barcelona. Very excited about it. Never been to Barcelona, so I hear it's beautiful, and I'm very excited to just be in Barcelona. This is my favorite congress, my favorite conference in the whole world, because it brings together patients, researchers, care providers, clinicians, people with Parkinson's, as I mentioned, and their care providers. 
It also tends to bring a lot of dogs, which I find really interesting. There is actually training for Parkinson's dogs as support animals. So it's often some dogs that show up that are hanging out in the audience. And it's really rewarding to hear what the patients are asking because they get to ask questions directly to these researchers, to these deep brain stimulation developers and engineers, and to these clinicians that are talking about the treatment programs they create in the Netherlands or in Africa. So the patients get to ask questions. And when they ask questions, they really, they ask it from a place that is most important for us to listen to, which is, this is what really matters to the patients. When they ask a question, it's telling you what really matters. I'm looking very much forward to hearing what really matters to Parkinson's patients in 2023. And I will be providing an update in one of our upcoming episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I really look forward to hearing your feedback. If you have any questions or you want to suggest an episode, please reach out at thewellnurturedbrain at gmail.com. That's thewellnurturedbrain at gmail.com. We'll be dropping another episode in two weeks. Until then, please remember, be kind to your mind. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Well-Nurtured Brain. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe and share this podcast. Spread the word about brain health to your friends and family. They'll thank you. The content of this podcast is not intended as a substitute for medical advice, nor should it be considered as such. If something discussed today seems applicable to you, please seek the assistance of an appropriately licensed healthcare professional. Thanks again for listening.